Hello and welcome to the i3 podcast. My name is Wouter Klein and I'm the Director of Content for the Investment Innovation Institute. For more information about our educational forums for institutional investors, please visit our website at www.i3-invest.com. There you can also subscribe to our complimentary newsletter, i3 Insights in which we discuss investment strategy and asset allocation questions with asset owners around the world. Now, as you all know, we love our disclaimers in this industry, so here's ours. This recording is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute financial advice. Please enjoy the show. Welcome to the i3 podcast. I'm here today with Tanya Brenwhite, who is the head of portfolio construction at T-Corp. Tanya, welcome to the podcast. Good morning, and um, I'm really pleased to be here, Walter. Thanks for the invitation. Thank you. We always ask a little bit about people's uh, background and how they got into investing. Um, So what made you decide to pursue a career in investing? I think you started out initially as an analyst at Deutsche Bank. Well, actually, if we really want to go back, um, I wouldn't say that I pursued a career in investing. It sort of happened. Um, So I won't ever say there was any great design in where I've ended up per se. I actually started off as a credit analyst um, and I did that in the very uh, whiz-bang years of the uh, late 1980s, early 1990s. And being a credit analyst at that time actually for Elders Finance Group was a fairly interesting, um, let's just say baptism of fire from one extreme of um, obviously we were operating in an environment where there was uh, certainly a lot of money uh, available and then I ended my career uh, with Elders Finance in working out uh, a whole range of corporate finance lending that had gone a bit sour and um, there wasn't too many other people left in the organisation to work that out. So um, so that's really how I started off. Um, I then moved to Citigroup and as part of, at that stage, almost still a graduate training program, uh, ended up in their investment arm and that's sort of how my investing career started. So let's just say it wasn't by any great des- sort of design, but much more of a, of a sort of a journey of serendipity and opportunities presenting themselves. Fair enough. Now, you also spent a significant time at Macquarie. I think yes. it was more than 10 years. Yes. Um, can you tell us some of the sort of highlights from that period? Uh, look, my career at Macquarie uh, was an extremely fulfilling, challenging and enjoyable uh, part of my career. Um, At the time that I joined Macquarie, I'd certainly been um, on the, uh, both the asset management or certainly the um, asset, yeah, asset manager side in listed equities, but I'd also uh, worked, um, you know, on the broking side at Deutsche uh, writing research. So to the extent that I'd had opportunity to see both sides, both the client side and being a client, um, I think really sort of gave me a very good perspective. Macquarie is, as we are all well aware these days in Australia, a very unique organisation, very successful, and there is no doubt culture is at the heart of that success. 
they certainly um, have a very clear way in which they encourage you. I'm not sure to the degree that people are aware of some of the um, ways in which their culture is internally described. When I began, it was called loose tight, which meant that there was a certainly a set of rules that you had to obey. But once you understood those rules, they encourage you uh, to be as entrepreneurial, see it as your own business, uh, take ownership, and you were empowered. Um, I think they've, and, and I'm a few years out of Macquarie now, so I'm not sure how they describe internally their culture, but then it became one called freedom within boundaries, which is probably a much uh, clearer way to articulate um, boundaries and risk is at the heart of the organisation, but within that sort of set of boundaries, again, fully encourage and empower people to bring their best ideas of, of both um, opportunity to do new things, challenge others. Um, what were the highlights at Macquarie? Well, I sort of was at Macquarie through a really turbulent period in investment markets. I started in 2004. Right. And I didn't leave there until uh, 2015. So in 2004, we sort of rode the whole wave leading to the GFC. Uh, Macquarie, like many other investment banks, uh, certainly had to stand back and reassess itself uh, and its business model. Uh, but one of the things that Macquarie is extremely good at is pivoting, and it pivoted very quickly there. Um, let's just say that some of the research I wrote, um, particularly around the GFC, uh, under the um, understanding of Chinese walls that we were completely independent in the uh, securities division, writing institutional research, um, in a number of those research pieces around the height of the GFC, I highlighted a number of Macquarie vehicles as having significant financial risk. Let's just say that wasn't well accepted internally within the organisation <laughs> at the time and certainly caused both myself, um, uh, you know, quite a lot of angst um, in terms of sort of what it feels like for the organisation's pressure to bear down on you, to challenge you and um, really test your resolve as to whether you stood by that research. The time I wrote the research, the full GSC had not really occurred. And so, um, and it was, look, this was not crystal ball gazing. This was just straight financial analysis. Yeah. We're analysing cash flows of companies right across the listed spectrum. A number of Macquarie vehicles were sort of highlighted through that analysis. And I simply shared, you know, those companies as well as a number of others uh, that were obviously in a business model from a cash flow perspective that would be under pressure if the environment we're operating in at the time was going to continue. And that was prescient, but... Um, but let's just say um, I learnt to trust your, uh, not instincts, but your analysis, trust the rigour of that analysis and um, be prepared to stand by it if you truly believe that what you were writing and the work that you were doing was actually the right insights to share at that time with our institutional clients and it was. Yeah, um, because you stayed on for quite a while after yes, that. So absolutely. It, it, it didn't cause any sort of permanent <laughs> disruption for you? No, it didn't. In fact, in some respects, um, I'd have to say it sort of made a little bit of my Macquarie career internally because in having stood my ground and obviously the organisation, um, you know, people talk, particularly at senior levels, and so my name obviously was known <laughs> through that period, um, I actually then was internally sought after for... Um, you know, over the ensuing sort of probably six or seven or eight years to help other divisions, the investment banking division, see investment banking clients, give some advice on some of the transactions they were looking at. So it actually really opened up a, a much broader engagement internally and with a broader client base ultimately. 
So, um, yeah, for, 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 quite, for, for a short period of very deep pain, um, there was some very nice payoff ultimately, um, you know, for, for my career at Macquarie. Yeah, so that almost harks back to what you mentioned about the freedom within the rules. Yes. Um, you, you did have enough freedom to have a little bit of a critical voice out there. Yes. Yeah, look, I think, um, I think that's absolutely correct. And real credit to um, the person who was my ultimate divisional director at the time, Roy Laidlaw. Um, he asked me directly uh, at the time of all of this um, angst going on, uh, do you stand by the research? Do you think there's any errors in it? Um, are you confident about what you've written? And I said, yes, I am. And he said, fine, that's all I need to know. And so he was very much the one who stood behind me and beside me um, against you know, some of the other people within the organisation who really were very angry with me to, to be sort of saying the least. Yeah, so a true merit-based system. Yes, there. correct, true merit-based system. So from Macquarie, you joined the Future Fund. Yes. Uh, the Future Fund is, is a government organisation. Yes. Um, I imagine that would be quite a different environment than sort of the corporate environment at Macquarie. Yeah, look, it was. But that said, um, and I made an active choice. I had, um, by the time I had left Macquarie, I had been effectively in the listed equity strategy space for the Australian market for a very long period of time, over 20 years. Um, and with the teams that I'd worked with, you know, had certainly, um, I think, been recognised as doing very high quality work, were very well rated by clients, both globally as well as domestically. And there does come a point sometimes in your career where you say, well, I'm going to continue to do this, or I'm actually going to probably jump off the cliff and do something a bit different. I won't say it's completely different going to the asset ownership side. Um, but the opportunity presented was presented to me to join the Future Fund. Um, the Future Fund I'm not sure to the degree now I have been an insider is still an, an enigma, but I think it was an enigma at that time. Um, in you know 2014, it had only been really established for about six or seven years, truly. And, um, and so it really wasn't that well known and it didn't have as much of a sort of public face. So, um, so it was really sort of quite an interesting place. And definitely there was a, even then a recognition of an institution of great quality um, and doing things differently. Yeah. So that intrigued me. Um, I, I like to do things differently. I like to um, challenge boundaries. So to the extent that it's sort of aligned, I think, with my own personal values, I was really, uh, really delighted to, um, to, do, to go to the Future Fund. And I moved to Melbourne as well. So from a personal perspective, there was a bit of, um, a, bit of a change personally to move from Sydney to Melbourne. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But what's the sort of government environment, a bit of a culture shock coming from sort of a more hard-nosed commercial environment? Yeah, look, uh, it's really funny. I mean, uh, you know, um, I've worked now for two government organisations, one federal and my current one, which is a state. Uh, you, do, you, do you feel that they are government? You feel, the, you feel the effect of the government being the client. As to the culture, though, I think the culture of government organisations can still very much be a reflection of the approach of leadership. Certainly there are constraints that working for a government entity. And, and remember, actually, the Future Fund is not a government department. It is a, it's effectively a government-owned or, or a corporation, the same as T-Corp is. So the Future Fund didn't feel necessarily like I'd gone from a corporate uh, free-flowing in, 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 uh, organisation to one that was so restricted from a government or um, government ownership perspective. Um, the organisation of the Future Fund, I felt, was very clear on its objective it was very clear on its stakeholder and what it was there to do 
Um, and the stakeholder clearly has great deep interest um, and oversight and engagement, but you didn't feel like it was a restrictive, if, if that's sort of where your question was leading, it didn't feel like it was a restrictive environment. Uh, we were still given a lot of opportunity to operate the investment model in the way the organisation had laid it out. Yeah. Well, if the future fund is an enigma for you, then it's definitely one for me. So right. I didn't have any preconceived <laughs> ideas, but I could imagine that it, it, it's quite sort of a different um, objective and focus uh, between the two organisations. Yes. Um, yes. But also, uh, I, I presume it depends largely on, on the quality of the people there, which, you know, the future fund has some very good people. Yeah. And look, I think... Um, to the extent that the Future Fund does have an alignment with Macquarie in the sense of it, it went down a path of an investment approach that was different. It went down the path of an investment approach that was different because it felt it brought much better outcomes on behalf of the client. Um, and I suppose the profit motive is obviously the big difference, but one can say you can somewhat um, almost sort of transfer profit motive to performance outcomes. Um, and being successful in delivering to the client objective. Yeah. So now you're at T-Corp and you focus on portfolio construction. Um, so we've seen a lot of changes recently in, well, in the last couple of years at T-Corp uh, with the various mergers, uh, new team, new team structure. Yes. And, and one of the changes as well is that T-Corp has uh, embraced sort of the to total portfolio approach. Yes. Can you tell me a little bit about how that uh, um, changes your focus and how it changes practically the investment portfolio as well. Yeah, um, I think again the context of the fact that the Future Fund had operated at a total portfolio approach and, and it's a little bit like each organisation can interpret that what that means a little differently but broadly speaking the focus um, in a total portfolio approach is really ensuring that you're focused on the whole of portfolio outcomes not making an assumption that the pieces brought together will bring you the best outcome. Um, you know, I mean, a very simple and silly analogy perhaps, but it's like thinking about, you know, a recipe and you think about all the elements of the recipe and you can end up with all the best ingredients. But if you don't really know how to bring those ingredients together in the right way, then the cake you might be baking may not be as good as if you really think about um, how these things interact, how they come together. Um, are you are you sort of um, exposing, uh, you know, the, the example for a cake, are you exposing it to a particular underlying um, uh, taste or flavour that perhaps you didn't aware when brought together may overwhelm perhaps the outcome. Um, so a total portfolio approach is a mindset change first and primarily if you don't think that way and if the whole investment team is not really thinking about what my role is to that total portfolio outcome then whatever structure you put in place whatever data you put in place you're not going to be successful and so i think um, the cultural experience was one that was very different between the Future Fund and T-Corp because the Future Fund was founded on a total portfolio approach. It was incepted with that mindset, incepted with that approach. So when I joined, that was, it's not to say there aren't always tensions, I think in any organisation where you've got really motivated individuals trying to achieve something, there will always be some, um, you know, competitive, creative tension. But uh, it's a very different mindset that you think about what am I doing and how I'm using that capital to bring the best outcome at the total portfolio. For T Corp, it was a journey of change, one where 
not only were three different investment teams being amalgamated, but actually that amalgamation then um, was was then progressed into a complete change in the way in which money was managed, thought about the objectives of the clients and, and articulation. So there's no doubt that the, the change in T Corp has been profound. The change in T Corp has been holistic and complete. There isn't an element of what T Corp now does that hasn't been touched by that change. So beyond the amalgamation, but actually the underlying change in the investment model and the mindset. Um, how do you how do you describe the difference in total portfolio approach? Well, first of all, I think the other thing in the way in which we've really been disciplined in our total portfolio approach mindset is we say that risk is at the heart of what we do. And that is founded on the belief that um, we can only control and manage risk. Outcomes are a result of that risk. And so perhaps there's a nuance there that not only is it a total portfolio approach, but it's risk-based. And therefore, we think about the underlying risks that drive asset classes. Our risk exposures transcend the definition of asset classes. And so when we're thinking about different asset classes, we think about what um, small group of similar risks we may actually be um, exposing the portfolio to. And that may be in the form of, say, for example, infrastructure, or it could be actually in the form of something quite different. The asset class definition is not really the basis upon which you think about constructing a portfolio. Right. And I believe that um, central to this model is, is the equity risk, that that is sort of the measure uh, against which you measure other investments and how it all fits together. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so you're right. Um, what we take the view, or, or again, reflected in our beliefs, is we need to take risk in order to generate return. The risk uh, factor, as we would call it, that effectively you're awarded for in taking that risk that is likely to deliver the highest level of return, but for the highest level of risk, is equity risk. And so the way in which we engage uh, with our clients and across the 14 portfolios that we manage is we think very, very clearly about the risk budget and we then translate that risk budget into how much equity risk that that is likely to require in order for the objective that the client is um, seeking to achieve likely to be met. Now, equity risk is not the only critical risk that we actually think about. We actually have four what we call primary risk factors. Equity risk is the um, most important because without taking equity risk, we know that we're not really going to be able to, over the long run, have any prospect with great certainty of achieving the client's return objective. Most of our client objectives are CPI plus type objectives, so we're having to generate a real rate of return. But the other three risk factors that are inherent across what we believe is the opportunity um, set in an investment market context are the term risk, credit risk, and interestingly enough from an Australian perspective is FX risk. And um, those four risk factors, our analysis would suggest accounts for about 95 to 96% of the total portfolio risk behaviour. And those four risk factors and the premium, risk premium associated with them effectively then account for a similar amount of the expected return. 
So, so equity is um, a very much the defining risk factor, but we do think about it in that sort of broad primary risk factor framework. So I presume that the credit and the term risk relate mostly to fixed income type of investments. Um, if, if you look at sort of the environment when we just come out of a period where we had very low rates, how do you deal with sort of diversifying away then from the <laughs> equity risk? Because it's you know, it seems to be the only risk there that's, that's significantly driving the portfolio. Yes. Well, as we um, I all should be well schooled on, the only free lunch in investing is diversification. Um, and equity risk diversification is uh, at the heart of what we seek to do. But you're absolutely right, Walter, to, to call out the fact that um, those other risk factors um, are diversifying, but not always. And there is the risk pardon the pun, at the moment that there may be a secular change in which the relationship between equity risk and term risk in particular uh, may, be, may be changing. One where we've gone from, uh, let's just say, more of a positive correlation, uh, sorry, more of a negative correlation and more of a positive correlation. So that correlation change um, is also something that we need to think about. So it's the interrelationship of these risk factors, which is what you're calling out. But I think um, total portfolio approach and the idea of diversification is that what we call idiosyncratic type or differentiated type of risks, they really do have a disproportional benefit to your portfolio. If you can identify investment opportunities that bring to the portfolio um, a different set of risks, still a set of risks, but they are different particularly to those primary factors, uh, then to the extent that that's very valuable and hugely beneficial, particularly in periods of dislocation. I think if we were to sort of say most clients um, who have capital invested for some sort of real return, when things are going well, everyone's comfortable, it's the left tail. And so what we do focus on is in stressed market environments, how those differentiated type or idiosyncratic type of risks may then further diversify away from those primary risk factors. Um, and so hopefully take down um, what we would call the volatility of the behavior of the portfolio as it, it goes through time and through the different investment environments it faces. Yeah, so where do you find this idiosyncratic risk? Is that um, mainly in equities, active management, or is it also in the unlisted market? Yes. Um, so very good question. Um, active management is certainly an idiosyncratic risk. Uh, it is generally seen, certainly our analysis and work, uh, we, we, we construct portfolios on the basis that it should be very um, uncorrelated or highly uncorrelated to our primary risk factors because it is reflection of skill. So it is valuable. Um, but there are beyond um, active risk in the idiosyncratic space that can be beneficial. Um, a good example of that, and you, you're right to point out, the illiquid space, not just unlisted assets, but illiquid assets, um, they can provide benefits. Uh, a good example is an investment that we hold in the portfolio. It's a series of hydroelectric dams in Canada. Uh, we were very fortunate to be able to, um, under a bilateral arrangement, uh, purchase a half share of that um, set of investments from a Canadian um, investor who was looking to uh, reduce their exposure there. Now that obviously has its own series of risks, but pr primarily it's a hydrology risk. 
Um, they are set up to sell the electricity into the electricity grid uh, of Ontario. And so if there's no water in the dams, well, then clearly that's a risk. But that's a risk that um, is different. It's not correlated, generally speaking, to economic risk. And so that's, a, for example, an, uh, an example of a, a part of our portfolio that provided us with a high degree of resilience through the last few years. Yeah, and that's probably also a regulated asset, so there's some certainty on, on um, return and, and yield. Has a, has a degree of regulation. Um, there's no doubt about that. But I think if you stand back and say a collection of hydro dams in the current environment, the underlying asset itself is, is, is I would argue, quite unique and a very difficult asset to replicate. So the barrier to entry of the benefit of that asset, and obviously it has a sustainability element as well because it's certainly um, valuable into any electricity grid um, because it's obviously green energy. Yeah, yeah. So it will be playing a role in the energy transition. Correct. So therefore, has those sort of characteristics that um, are a positive um, to the solution for sustainability. Yeah. So we're now in a higher interest rate environment. Um, there's still a lot of risk with higher inflation. You mentioned the the, the positive correlation between uh, uh, debt and equity. But does the higher interest rates give you more levers to play with from sort of that risk perspective? I mean, I can imagine that bonds will probably have a bit more of a role to play than, say, five years ago. Yeah. So we would sort of thought, think about it more in term risk. So term risk is effectively the sensitivity of the portfolio to interest rate change. Um, does it give us more levers? Well, to the extent that clearly um, nominal return on cash and the yield that you may be generating, obviously, from your term risk premium is there. But I'd highlight that in a real return environment, the real return hurdle is increased substantially. So in nominal terms, you might say, well, there's some other assets that might at least provide us with some higher nominal return than the past. That's true. But the real return hurdle has also gone up. So I would actually argue challenge is probably even higher than what it was before. Okay. Uh, what other levers does it give us? Um, I think it actually suggests that we need to hunt more deeply, have a much broader perspective on what is differentiating. I think the real testament to our learnings for everybody in investment markets last year was the uh, behaviour of term and equity risk. We know equity risk behaved in a fairly typical fashion for, a, let's just say, an economic shock. But if you think about the term risk behaviour and its um, return, uh, it was really a three standard deviation. So it was almost like um, bonds and their associated term risk had their global financial crisis in a degree last year. So it was, it was a three standard deviation event for that term risk um, behaviour yeah. and certainly the return to term risk. So actually the focus on can we find, it's not so much equity risk we're looking to really try and further defray, it's can we find proxies for term risk that aren't so directly linked to term. In other words, they still diversify equity risk, but they're actually not going to be high, highly correlated necessarily to term risk. And that's a real challenge. Yeah. Um, you know, if you look at across some of the spectrum of assets, uh, some of the toll roads, for example, or unlisted assets, they'll often have CPI kickers as their underlying uh, revenue drivers. So they'll have a, some sort of revenue reset associated either with a level of CPI or a minimum change. 
those are the sort of underlying um, cash flow drivers that are very beneficial to a portfolio, and they can come in all sorts of different, um, in, you know, all sorts of different wrappers, if you like, uh, from an unlisted assets perspective. So, with inflation at sort of that eight percent level, real returns are really problematic. Yes. But I think maybe over the longer term, I think the general expectation is that inflation might come down to maybe three, four percent. Yep. Not quite the RBA two percent yes. level, but maybe three to four percent. Does that mean that you, you you're looking at taking maybe longer duration investments where to anticipate that coming down of, of inflation? So I will certainly offer um, the mantra that we have at T Corp, uh, which is one of, of great humbleness, which is we prepare but can't predict. Um, and to the extent that I would say my own personal view of having observed many commentators in markets over a very long period of time, um, it's very hard to predict short-term outcomes. And when you have very large institutional portfolios, you can't position those portfolios. Well, I think, I think it's very risky and very um, challenging to actually position large institutional portfolios on a, let's just say, a shorter-term view. Uh, the way in which we do portfolio construct is very much around that longer horizon. Um, most of our portfolios have got a long horizon. Some are a little bit shorter. But generally speaking, we think about our portfolio construction much more with that long-term perspective. We are focused at a, at a stream of work at the moment, which we're called, calling journey risk management. And that's thinking about how the portfolio moves through time, through different market environments. And again, using the risk lens is, can we think about where we might observe that um, the level of risk that would be presented from a particular opportunity or asset class, that risk is not being rewarded. Either it's not being rewarded because the return expectations in the shorter term might be too low, or the return expectations are much higher and the market doesn't, you know, market's not, not appreciating that. But we're very humbled in saying that's going to be um, a very modest part of our portfolio and how we manage it. And in some cases, really there, what we're trying to manage is not to um, pick a path but be aware of the path dependencies of a portfolio in the environment we're in and just making sure that the portfolio, as we think particularly around diversification, can we actually reduce some of that path dependency? So it's trying to, if you like, narrow the volatility, expected volatility of a portfolio. But let's be really open and transparent here. This is a very challenging environment to be very confident about how you can do that. Yeah, yeah. That long-term focus reminded me, I had a couple of weeks ago, I had Ken Marshman, uh, uh, um, I was interviewing him. Looking back at his career, he's sort of retired more or less now. He's, of course, well known from his uh, time with Jana and more uh, towards the later part of his career as chair of REST. And he was at some uh, point uh, basically lamenting a little bit the fact that the investment focus has become shorter and shorter term to the point that People are, are looking too much at uh, short-term price changes rather than sort of the underlying fundamental drivers behind businesses or, or other investments. Um, T-Corp also has that long-term uh, focus. Do, do you recognize some of his comments in, in sort of the changes you've seen compared to maybe when you started out? Yes. I, look, I think there's always the temptation and the pressure to think about short-term um, and certainly, I mean, to the extent that we have, um, you know, a very broad range of asset managers uh, and those asset managers are closer to the market, 
they may be aware of opportunities that present themselves either from a risk or return perspective to take advantage. So I think it's what, wh where do you seek to have that shorter term perspective reflected in your portfolio? Some might argue that shorter term perspective in a manager and an asset class sense is the skill, right? That's the skill base of, a, of an asset manager. So that's really where active management should be giving you that re return. I think in moving what I would call much more of your um, portfolio construction building blocks around, um, thinking about those in a short-term context, I think that is certainly not the way to most effectively deliver the, um, the, the returns um, for the risk that your clients are seeking. So one of the things we do also that I think is a very important point to your question is that if you're thinking about having to be short-term, is that because perhaps you don't have the sort of relationship with your clients where you've really articulated what that journey of a portfolio may feel like in the worst times, not in the best times, but in the worst times. And so we have a very deep engagement with our clients around establishing their risk appetites, what sort of risk they can stomach at different points in that portfolio's journey. So in a short horizon, can they tolerate down eight, down 10%? Um, and if you've had those conversations, then to the extent of the pressure of feeling about wanting to move things in a shorter term perspective, um, then I think that goes away. That said, there are strategies, however, that you may have in place. For example, we run a risk overlay, um, particularly around equity uh, risk, particularly through options, where we are looking to mitigate those deep short, uh, those deep left, left tails, those drawdowns in equity markets. And in that case, you have to be willing to act within the moment of a short-term market move. Um, and certainly we learnt that in the COVID drawdown of the benefits of being disciplined about saying um, market move, this is a short-term opportunity, how do we want to manage uh, the portfolio of options we had, uh, in particular for one of our clients. Yeah. Now, talking about sort of that COVID period, one of the uh, things that came out of there as well is sort of the stark difference between listed and unlisted assets. and. Yes. Um, I think the regulator has been thinking a little bit more about, you know, how often should we evaluate unlisted assets. Mm. Um, did you draw any learning sort of from that period where you said maybe we should look at this as a little bit different or? Yes, I mean, I think it comes down to illiquid assets do require an illiquidity premium because of the um, constraints they put around your portfolio construction. But I think a naive approach to say that just because the valuation mark on an unlisted asset happens once a year, that the valuation volatility is reflection of only that one year mark. Um, I'd actually argue we should have learnt that out of the global financial crisis because property in particular, particularly in this country, had some fairly significant challenges. And also to the extent that um, some of the assets through COVID we're at risk of potentially needing cash injections. So I think to the extent, as do the listed market through capital raising, but I think sometimes in the unlisted space, maybe the risk of uh, the requirement of additional cash from shareholders um, is perhaps not thought about. Uh, we do try to uh, de-smooth, if you like, the way in which we understand the behaviour of unlisted assets. And there's a whole range of quantitative and te te technical techniques that you can apply. So to the extent that we do think about that, um, and there are some benchmarks that are very helpful in that space that might give you some better understanding. I think the other interesting observation was from some of our clients, given that they were very aware of their fiduciary obligation, 
of money that may be transacting through that period actually ask for valuations for the unlisted assets to be done more regularly. So in some cases they were being done quarterly. So I think it is interesting to observe that um, unlisted assets aren't as um, as, as um, stable in pricing terms as perhaps just um, the regularity of the valuation mark might suggest. So how do you approach liquidity from that portfolio construction point of view? Can you manage that from the TPA level, the total portfolio approach, or, or does it really differ from client to client? Because I think T-Corp has quite a wide variety of clients. Some yes. of them have more of an insurance um, element to it. How, yep. how do you manage that liquidity? Yeah, so just to really make quite clear, we apply TPA to each of the individual portfolios. So um, each portfolio respectively has its own sort of TPA focus. And um, again, in our engagement with clients, understanding the various natures of the funds, um, liquidity uh, is a very critical element of our consideration. Um, We have a number of funds where we have quite clear understandings of Uh, regular cash outflows. We also have a number of our funds which are funding various uh, New South Wales government projects, particularly in the infrastructure space. So um, we have a very clear understanding of the expected cash flows, although those cash flows do change through time. So we need to be very um, mindful of the portfolio construction uh, to align it to the uh, liquidity requirements of each fund and the uh, illiquidity Um, that we build into the fund needs to be uh, very much able to cope with sometimes some uncertainty around that liquidity requirement. So yes, it's an inherent part of each of our individual portfolio construction um, reviews. So what's on your agenda in the next couple of months? Um, Are there any big asset classes reviews coming up? Um, So we undertake an asset class review um, for all asset classes each year. Um, Probably T Corp is in the first, let's just say, probable 12 months where a lot of the restructuring, a lot of the change, a lot of the rethinking about how we approach um, the investment opportunities and how we put those together. Uh, We're really much more in now a phase of review and how do we utilise the structures and the um, what we call access points to different uh, investment opportunities. How do we um, make sure we're getting the most value out of those? how can we improve those? How can we bring further diversification? So if there was a project, um, it's not an asset class project, it's much more what we're sort of focusing in on intensifying our diversification. That's probably the best way to describe the project in front of us at the moment. And again, from a longer term perspective and really trying to find that, that sort of space that's not easily defined by asset class terms that might be beneficial to longer term portfolio outcomes. So are there any sort of innovative uh, new asset classes that you look at? Um, it's not so much asset classes, but probably different um, different ways in thinking about comparative advantage. Uh, we've certainly looked at, we're looking at natural capital um, in a way uh, that obviously has a sustainability um, lens to it as well, which is very beneficial. I think there's increasing um, uh, um, acknowledgement of some of the uh, investments that present themselves in that space that could be quite uh, different, diversifying, and yet still also having some sustainability benefits. Uh, We're also looking at what I would call not necessarily fully illiquid investments, but um, within that spectrum and having some illiquidity. And and markets in a more volatile environment can have different um, 
pricing opportunities that present. So these will be um, more in, in the space where uh, drawdowns cause sometimes some friction and that friction may require some liquidity to, um, to an investor to hold them through to, uh, to a maturity. So we're, we're sort of calling that opportunistic liquidity. Um, so we're looking at some, um, some uh, investment opportunities there as well. Um, and just really scouring across the sort of investment space to see are there some things that we're not currently exposed to that might be valuable. Yeah, yeah. I think as part of the changes as well, T-Corp has been uh, reducing sort of the number of external managers as users to build more meaningful partnerships with us. Has that finished or is there still some way to go? Look, I think it's always a constant, uh, it's a constant um, set of reviews. We're always looking at our portfolio. We're always sort of testing ourselves to say, is there a better way in which we could have this implemented? Are we ensuring that there isn't duplication? And if we have active management, are they delivering to the portfolio as we've sort of certainly set up the expectation to play the role? Um, so, you know, I don't think you can never say never, uh, but let's just say uh, a very large part of the initial phase of review and change is complete, but we're always reviewing um, that active element of our portfolio. And in fact, um, there has been a fairly important and very major, and I think what, was, what will turn out to be a very valuable project around how we think about active risk allocation, where it's actively allocated across our total portfolio, and thinking of an active risk budget as a total portfolio risk budget, as opposed to a single asset class risk budget. Um, and that certainly brought some insights to us that I think will be valuable for um, the next 12 months. Yeah. Now, T-Corp is not subject to the Your Future, Your Super Environment, no. <laughs> <laughs> which I'm sure you're very glad about. <laughs> yes. But I think one of the interesting elements that has come out of this sort of focus on, on, on this benchmark is that the super funds are much more aware of how they implement their investments because every little basis point saved there um, is, is basically almost outperformance. Yes. How, how do you think about implementation? Um, because in the context of sort of this dynamic with external managers, um, of course, they need to deliver. But, you know, switching in and out, terminating managers, reallocating capital also comes with a cost Correct. that you have to sort of add up at a total level. How do you think about implementation in that way? Look, implementation, you're absolutely right. Uh, there is certainly um, complexity, cost, dislocation, um, as well as actually the time and effort it takes for an investment team to undertake you know, changes in terms of how you implement things. So that without any doubt, um, you, know, you have to be very careful and I think considered in the way in which you approach both your implementation and um, and and changing it if you seek to change it. I think it, it's important to really stand back and say, if we are looking at a particular opportunity, um, what is the complexity of that implementation? Sometimes that complexity may not be as deeply considered and then the cost to the team of managing, overseeing, understanding that However, there are times where that, com that implementation complexity is valuable because it brings a, you know, a certain type of outcome or characteristic to the portfolio. So it is a very deep consideration. Uh, clearly what in the listed market, you certainly have to think about to what degree you're looking to replicate what we call the beaters, uh, to what degree you want active risk um, as an element, and to what degree is there sometimes 
more of a quantitative approach or a factor approach to, to how. So I think you need to sort of think in, in each asset class, what, is, what, what, what sort of implementations are available to you? What opportunities and costs do they, they bring to you? And it is something that at the total portfolio level, if you've got complex um, and very diverse implementations across your whole portfolio, um, and probably that was um, where T Corp was when I first joined. We had a lot of different asset classes that had gone down quite complex and um, really, you know, um, very, very sort of detailed considerations of what those implementations were to achieve. Um, actually, what you're getting was a very large amount of complexity, significant challenge to the team to oversee that and ultimately over diversification. So yes, implementation is a critical element of, of what we do. Yeah, so and it comes back to that total portfolio approach. Is yes. Does it in the end, all the complexity, complexity add up to extra return? A better return? outcome. Yeah. yeah, yeah, correct. Well, Tanya, thank you very much for your time. This was thank a great you. discussion and thanks for coming to our office. Thank you, it was fun, enjoyed it. Thanks, Walter. Thank you for listening to the i3 podcast. For more information, please visit www.i3-invest.com. Thank you very much.